Today I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, there were three gifts given to Jesus when he was uh, when he was a baby. What were they, of course? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What do you think was the most valuable? It was myrrh. Was myrrh? We like to think it's gold. I have no idea how you put this on. I'm going to have to be around the pulpit this time. This is how the Lord wants it. We, we tend to think it's gold. We tend to think gold is the most valuable thing he was given. It was actually myrrh. Myrrh was seen as the ointment the, uh, that would prepare a body unto death. It was also an antiseptic. It uh, still used sometimes in uh, cough medicine and in terms of, uh, and also even mouthwash. By the way, if we, are, if we disconnect the gifts that Jesus received from the gospel itself, which gift that Jesus received was seemingly the most inappropriate baby shower gift ever given? It was the myrrh. Because the myrrh also was symbolized the preparing for death. A very hard reality. Murder actually is very bitter in its constitution. Uh, murder was such a thing that you were presented unto death that even when Nero, Emperor Nero, was mourning the death of his wife, he decided in her funeral service to burn an entire year's supply of myrrh harvest in her honor. Murder is bitter but a sweet resin from trees. And myrrh, so it has these bitter associations in its flavor, but also because of the death it symbolized. But why do I start there? I start there because Smyrna has a lot in its name. And it actually received its name due to the fact that it was known as a region of myrrh harvest. And because I already mentioned how myrrh was more valuable than gold, that meant Smyrna was also a wealthy city because of its largest trade. While Ephesus was bigger, Smyrna, 35 miles to the north, was considered the best land of the region. Actually, when it comes to this region of the world, if we were to visit the seven churches where John wrote to, Smyrna, while not, no longer called Smyrna, would be the only region in which a major and notable city surrounds it still today. 
And this letter for the congregation of Smyrna would have been a hard one to receive. Think here the Apostle John is finally writing us from his imprisoned exile. We're finally going to get word from Jesus through John. And what Jesus is telling them is that they must be ready for tribulation and death. Basically being made willing to face the hardest of all sufferings. And this is one of only two letters of these first seven that Jesus does not criticize or negatively critique the church he's writing to. But as we'll uncover for the congregation of Smyrna, this does not mean the letter was easy to receive. Now, Smyrna itself was one of the jewel cities of the Roman Empire. They actually had discovered ancient coins from the region that show us that they called themselves first of Asia in beauty and size. Now, they, they weren't the biggest city. Both Alexandria and Ephesus were bigger in Asia. But, well, Alexandria is Africa. But it, it was a, a unique place. It was actually the city that Homer hailed from, the writer of the Iliad and the Odyssey. It is also a city that held a unique honor amongst the Roman citizens because they were the first foreign city in 195 B.C. to uh, create a temple honoring the god of Rome, the uh, pagan god Roma, the goddess. And so Rome loved her. And that's why when the Roman Caesars eventually decided to make themselves out to be God during the New Testament age, because why wait until you die to make yourself a God when you can be worshipped as a God in the here and now, they chose Smyrna as the city of Asia that people would come to, flock to, in order to make their offering to Caesar, in order to make their annual tribute to him. At least once a year, you had to give your pinch of salt, your, your proof of offering. That, uh, and if you did not do that, you could be punished to the full extent of the law. It was also a city often called a crown, which you can see from the cover of your bulletin. It had a crown-like shape, but also, in addition to that, it was a city known for its great mall, its bazaar. It, it had the king of Prussia on steroids in its own city. People would come from far and near in order to shop there. And so Smyrna is a political, an economic, a horticultural, a commercial powerhouse. And you would think a city like this one, right off the bat, would be a difficult one to find and develop a biblically faithful church within it. A city with lots of money, a city with lots of distractions and entertainments and false gods to worship, and fertile land. And yet, as I stated earlier, Smyrna is one of only two churches where Jesus doesn't say a single word of criticism to them. Not a single word. Because even though the setting they found themselves in was lavish and opulent, full of false gods and idols, wealth and greed, it would not define the church's life in Smyrna. But rather, they would hold the line remaining faithful to their Lord and Savior. Not just on Sundays, but daily in the midst of great calamity and trial. Our passage begins with verse 8, Jesus telling John to write to the messenger of the church of Smyrna, which I pointed out last time, is a word that is vague enough that John could have been writing to either the minister, the pastor of Smyrna, or 
to the angelic bodies, the heavenly host that protected the church, the guardian angel, per se. And I think John intentionally selects a word that is vague because Jesus really is speaking to both all at once. And Jesus begins by saying to this church something already revealed in the vision of chapter 1. He's saying, remember, I am the God of both the beginning and the end of time. And not just the fullness of time, but of life and death itself, over human existence itself. Jesus knows the moment we will begin and the moment we will end. Both are in his hands. But also, Jesus says, I'm the one who died and who came back to life. Basically, I am the one that makes it so myrrh no longer should have the kind of value it has in Smyrna. I am the ultimate embalming ointment in death. I am the one who makes sure that death is no longer bitter. I am the one who death cannot contain. And I am the Lord your God over time, over life, and over death. I am the one who makes all the false gods and all the false ideas and the patterns of the world worthless because of what I've done. Because I'm not just some spiritual idea of God, but I am the God who came in flesh and died. I died. So that you would not be one where death had to end in a bitter note. The believer never finds a bitter note of mirth at the end of death because of the work of Christ. And so Jesus begins to address the Christians of Smyrna and he begins with, I know your tribulation. What does that mean, tribulation? Do any of you have an instapot? I'm sure a few of you do. This isn't an endorsement to go out and go buy one, but an instapot is basically a pressurized a pressure cooker, electric pressure cooker. And you can speed up the cooking process on such things like tough meats. You could take things like a chuck roast, and within 20 minutes, that is, uh, it is full, pork pull apart tender. It's basically a faster version of a crock pot, which I did use as an illustration a couple months ago in a different sermon illustration. But tribulation is when God, yes, God, as he makes clear in this passage, allows the pressure in our lives to be amplified in order that the real underlying character and commitments of those who claim to be his people is on display. And so Jesus is addressing this church in Smyrna, saying, yes, I know your church faces unique pressures, but it will be to your benefit. And what are the specific unique pressures? Well, remember, this is a major city who uniquely worshipped the God of Rome and also uniquely was established as a place to make offerings unto Caesar. And if you don't make an offering unto Caesar, if you don't do what he commands, well, that's your choice, of course, but now no longer can you buy and sell in our shopping bazaars. You're locked out of business and trade. You've been canceled. And they justified these actions by claiming not participating in the emperor worship was a reform of rebellion and also a public health issue. It's good that we have no threat of something similar happening in our own day. 
It's awesome. Which struck the Christian church of this city with great poverty. It basically created an ancient version of the apartheid system. And so all of a sudden, this city that was surrounded with great wealth, wealth unlike any others, created a system that effectively impoverished Christians. And yet Jesus notes how in their poverty, the Christians of Smyrna figured out how to be rich. Which is an idea most of us American Christians don't really want to learn. We often tend uh, of visiting various other places uh, where we, we note that the poverty sometimes we see elsewhere when we were allowed to travel is, is very hard to see. And how fortunate we are to come back to be blessed by living in a place like this one. And yet that's not what Scripture is saying here. You know, when Smyrna really... It's saying, you know when Smyrna really figured out how to be wealthy? When they were made poor. When they were stripped of their riches. I was holding back tears this week as I was watching that little girl, um, I think her his name was Vic Bodie. Her name was Bodie from Cambodia in the Operation Christmas Child video that was posted to Facebook. Because here was this girl talking about how good the gift of God is. How loved she feels by God. And she's just beaming with joy about how God provides for her. Even though all behind her is trash. Nothing more than trash behind her. And I, I was weeping for her not because I felt so much sorry about her poverty. But I understood this girl understood something about God's providing hand that I've never been made to understand in the same way. And, and frankly, us as an American audience, this is an area where we have not been made to understand. This church of Smyrna had been wealthy, and yet due to circumstances, they had been stripped of that wealth and made poor by their government. And yet, in the grand scheme of things, they found greater comfort. And also, what a wonderful thing to remember. That the schemes of the world, that Satan, that evil, that the false followers of, of Christ, they can't really take away anything when it comes to God's love for us. And then we continue on. And another element is added to this pressure cooker of Smyrna. And it's the slander of those who say they are Jews, and yet are not, but are a synagogue of Satan according to the words of Jesus. But what's going on here? Well, a few things. There was one group that was given a religious exemption from making offerings unto Caesar. And it was, of course, the Amish. I mean, no, no, sorry. Sorry. Long time and place in history. It was the Jews. The Jews were a notable minority throughout the Roman Empire, and they were the one religious group that, that Caesar had caved. Caesar basically said, they worship a God so different. Uh, they, I mean, they don't even have idols in his image. That they don't have to worship Caesar. They don't have to make a public offering. And the Romans weren't really even sure that the Jews worshipped God. And so their, their belief seemed so odd to them that ultimately they were given an exception. And the fact is, for a little while, Christians seemed like Jews to the Romans. They worshipped the Jewish Messiah. The apostles were all Jews. And, and so, 
and they worshipped in synagogues alongside the Jews, and also they had house churches. But the fact is, for a little while, the Christians appeared to be Jews, to Rome. And yet what started to happen is the Jews began to despise the Messianic followers of Jesus. We can read about this in the book of Acts, for instance, in chapter 14, but so much so that they began to tell Rome, those are Jews. Don't give them the same rights of worshiping Caesar. Don't give them the same access to the shopping centers that we have. Those are true Jews. They are this cannibalistic cult movement that will bring you nothing but problems. And it worked. An alliance between false Jews, according to Jesus' words, and the Roman government was struck. And it led to problems in Smyrna, this bitter city, and also throughout the empire. And the idea is not all that novel throughout Christian history either. Even still today, there are false Christians that persecute true Christians. A depressing fact I learned this week is the fact that when it comes to the underground church in China, the most faithful churches in China, when they find themselves uncovered, when they find themselves uh, basically stormed by the government, the most common enemy to them, the ones most responsible for closing the underground churches in China, are not the Chinese military. They're not even the political leaders. It's the state-sponsored Christian congregations have turned in more underground churches than any other. The ones who have the seal of approval in China and its government as a legitimate form of Christianity, they are far and away the most efficient at turning in faithful underground churches. And I think the saddest idea to that reality is this. It didn't surprise me all that much the more I thought about it. It's really unsurprising to consider that it would be the goats that would have the strongest desire to see the sheep slaughtered. False Christians are a lot more worrisome to the unraveling of the freedom of religion in this country than political leaders who will say pithy religious things in order to secure votes. Here we are considering the most dire circumstance of any of the seven churches of Revelation. And what helped lead to the greatest of all pressure cookers found within any of these congregations? An unholy union between false forms of biblical faith and political leaders. If history has the habit of repeating itself, which it does, false forms of Christianity, which long ago gave up their fidelity to the Word of God, that don't want to be associated or lumped in with biblically faithful ones, often are the ones who say the loudest crack down on them. And yet here is God's word reminding us that even if some such schemes are executed, the glorious King of heaven and earth still stands with us. Even though it might feel like we are utterly abandoned, He is still with us. But let's also be honest. We have a false sense of security when it comes to persecution. I mean, we are in a church that has such a false sense of security that uh, we, we have a flag right here that, that, in one sense, is up here for the ideal that government and religion can complement one another when done well. And yet, are most of you aware 
that in the 20th century, there were more martyrs of the faith than the other 19 centuries combined? 20th century had more martyrs in the faith than the other 19 centuries combined. It would be trending on Twitter. It wasn't that long ago when we saw 21 faithful Egyptian men marched out to the beachside and made martyrs by ISIS. And there isn't much biblical evidence to convince yourself it can never happen here. Actually, the biblical picture is that God will often use persecution. God will often use moments of tribulation. God will use the pressure cooker moments in order to grow His church. Moving on to verse 10, we read, First, do not fear what you are about to suffer. If there's anyone who understands suffering, it's of course Christ. He faced down all the varieties of torment the world had to throw at him. And yet, there is this interesting reality to fear in the Bible. Really, there, there are, first and foremost, the Bible constantly tells people, do not fear death. Do not fear the last times. Do not believe, fear tribulation. That basically, Christ came... And the promises of Christ mean that we don't have to fear nearly as much as we, we usually fear in our life. And then it cuts the other way, too. The Bible is also clear that so many do not actually fear God until it will be too late. So basically, Christian, the idea of the Bible's story on fear is stop fearing God and also stop fearing what this life might throw at you. Already know what he's done in order to make your salvation secure. Well, on the other hand, those who have come here with no true fear over God, or for God, please fear God before it's too late, so that you might discover the one in whom offers a perfect love that will cast out your fear. And then the verse continues. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Here's a verse you'll never see a prosperity gospel preacher preach on or run to. But let me read it a second time in, in case you didn't pick up the tension of the verse. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. First, let me point out something. The devil is not equal in power to Jesus. Or God. Sometimes we want to think of the devil and Jesus as almost in a tennis match. They, they go back and forth, they're balling, they're, they're hitting shots together, uh, and eventually Jesus gains the upper hand. That's not a biblical view of the devil at all. God is in utter control of the devil. As R.C. Sproul used to put it, the devil is God's devil. Jesus makes clear he is going to allow the devil to throw some of them into prison. Not that he's powerless to stop the devil from doing it. Not, not because he failed to put a hedge of protection up so no one would get thrown to prison. Jesus is going to allow the devil to come up with a scheme that imprisons Christians and God is going to allow it to come to pass because what the devil will mean for evil, God will ultimately use for good. 
The New Testament church began as a suffering church. We are a church that at our core, at the heart of it, all is the cross. The ancient uh, object of great suffering. And in that we find redemption through Christ. And what Jesus is making clear here to the New Testament church is that God's redemptive plan will continue on through suffering. That it's not just only the one at Calvary who advances the grace and love of God through suffering, but it also will be those disciples, those followers of Christ, following in His footsteps. The devil's plans can only fulfill Christ's ultimate masterpiece of salvation. And so, the devil attacks upon true members of the faith through suffering, only to make us closer to God in the end and to bring more sheep into the flock. Also important to understand is being thrown into prison in Rome's day was nothing like today. It was not three pots and a cot. Prisoners' ultimately, uh, ultimate care and responsibility was towards their family and friends. And yet, who would have been the people being thrown into jail in Smyrna? It would have been those former breadwinners. It would have been predominantly uh, the breadwinners of the families who had been in commerce. It would have even been the ministers of the church. Which meant that for the imprisoned in Smyrna, it was already the same impoverished families that would have to provide for the former breadwinners in jail. And so you'll see a unique reference to ten days, and that's actually a reference to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. When Daniel and his three friends were tested for not wanting to eat the food from Nebuchadnezzar, and and basically they asked if they could eat a, a diet of vegetables and water, and they told Nebuchadnezzar that you'll see after ten days we will be... Uh, more healthy, we will have basically more fat on us in one sense, and a better health than the food that the Babylonian king can provide. So what I think Jesus was, is alluding to here is the fact that during the pressure cooker moment, when food would be scarce, God would sustain them. Their king in heaven will not forget them. And also with those ten days, it was a symbol that God will never allow our suffering to carry on so long that we lose him and we let go of him. He will put it to an end. He knows that the pressure cooker moments of life are hard. And so Jesus will end suffering before it overwhelms his faithful people. Pain and suffering always have an end date. That is the Christian worldview. Yet his rewards are eternal to those who endure his trials and tribulation in faith. And then Jesus begins to conclude, even if you die, I'll make sure you get a crown. If you remember um, the crown of Smyrna's shape or the crown of Smyrna's mole. And yet that's not the crown that Jesus is talking about here. While those were the things that Smyrna valued in John's day, and they called them crown, those monuments to former glory as your cover helps show you has long since crumbled. But Jesus will allow those who endure the tribulation a crown of everlasting life that can never be taken away, not even at the great judgment to come, which is called the second death, or as Revelation 20, verse 14, refers to it, the lake of fire. So this letter's cry to Samirna is for us to remain faithful always to the one with the power over life and death, to not forsake him, 
Don't deny Him for the fleeting things of this life in order to secure greater temporary ease and comfort. While it might seem like a sweeter life at first, to forsake Jesus, there is a bitterness in the long term. Do not forsake the one who, in being given bitter myrrh as a child, the embalming ointment redeemed it, making death no longer the end, but a sweeter new beginning for those who believe in Him. Do not deny the one who makes myrrh no longer bitter, Christian. Hold on to Him throughout all the struggles and present difficulties. You know, it's interesting. Hardly a pastor uh, can finish talking about Smyrna without mentioning the man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was to John, in many ways, what Timothy was to Paul. He was his mentee. And depending on when you date this book, and I do go with an earlier debate uh, date, Polycarp was from Smyrna. He was a man of Smyrna. And he would have first likely received and heard this letter about the age of seven or the age of eight. And he would have known the weightiness of this word. And all his life he would have definitely wanted to read that portion of scripture that was directly in reference to the congregation that he first was a part of and eventually what became the pastor of. And in his 86th year of life, Polycarp was taken before the Roman proconsul of Smyrna. And he was offered one final olive branch by Rome. The proconsul said, Swear loyalty to Caesar and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp just sort of smirked and uttered one of the most famous lines ever uttered by a martyr of the faith. He stated, 86 years I have served Christ, and He never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? With that refusal, Polycarp was taken into the public square of Smyrna for a public burning. He had faithfully forsaken the crown that Smyrna offered in order to receive a promised crown from the nail-pierced hands of His Lord. Don't let a false sense of security overcome you, Christian. The God over life and death uses tribulation. He uses pressure cooker moments in our life in order to grow His church. Let us be made ready to endure well whatever end comes for us. For we have received the promise of a greater crown for a God who has removed all the bitterness of death. And a God who is over time, over life, and over life everlasting. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, there were difficulties in this sermon. Difficulties in its delivery and the audio equipment and and even preaching it. And what we've heard in the tribulation you talk about. And we don't know, Lord, the future. We know You've provided this Word in order to give us warning. So let us heed the warning. Let us count the cost of what it means to be a Christian. Let us understand that ultimately, Lord, uh, that through the power of the Spirit, we need to be made ready for whatever might befall us. We need to be made ready to see suffering and see how You use suffering in order to grow Your church. We need to be made ready in order to be stripped of our possessions if necessary, be made poor so that we can be found as rich in Christ.
Help us to become a church ready for whatever trials and tribulations you have in store. We thank you for the peace of Christ that ultimately has never injured us, never done us malice or done us wrong, that we have a full forgiveness in Him. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.